Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 158 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Throughout the remainder of this season, we will be continuing to read through and conclude the casebook of Sherlock Holmes. This week, we have a new case entitled The Adventure of the Retired Colorman. A colorman, if you do not know, is the English term for one who deals in various dyes. And so, Sherlock and Watson are once again partnered together on this case. Last week, of course, Watson was off away with his wife and his family, and Sherlock was neatly retired in a Hamlet community. However, as is with the casebook, we meet Sherlock and Watson in various stages of their relationship with one another. And this case, they are back in London at 221B Baker Street, sleuthing cases together. So without further ado, let us begin reading The Adventure of the Retired Colorman, Part 1, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes was in a melancholy and philosophic mood that morning. His alert practical nature was subject to such reactions. Did you see him? he asked. You mean the old fellow who had just gone out? Precisely. Yes, I met him at the door. What did you think of him? A pathetic, futile, broken creature. Exactly, Watson. Pathetic and futile. But is not all life pathetic and futile? Is not his story a microcosm of the whole? We reach. We grasp. And what is left in our hands at the end? A shadow. Or worse than a shadow. Misery. Is he one of your clients? Well, I suppose I may call him so. He has been sent on by the yard. Just as medical men occasionally send their incurables to a quack, they argue they can do nothing more, and that whatever happens, the patient can be no worse than he is. What is the matter? Holmes took a rather soiled card from the table. Josiah Amberley. He says he was a junior partner of Brickfall and Amberley, who are manufacturers of artistic materials. You will see their names upon paint boxes. He made his little pile, retired from business at the age of 61, bought a house at Lewisham, and settled down to rest after a life of ceaseless grind. One would think his future was tolerably assured. Yeah, indeed. Holmes glanced over some notes which he had scribbled upon the back of an envelope. Retired in 1896, Watson. Early in 1897, he married a woman 20 years younger than himself. A good-looking woman, too, if the photograph does not flatter. A competence. A wife. Leisure. It seemed a straight road which lay before him. And yet, within two years, 
He is, as you have seen, as broken and miserable a creature as crawls beneath the sun. But uh, what has happened? The old story, Watson. A treacherous friend and a fickle wife. It would appear that Amberley had one hobby in life, and it is chess. Not far from him at Lewisham, there lives a young doctor who is also a chess player. I have noted his name is Dr. Ray Ernest. Ernest was frequently in the house, and an intimacy between him and Mrs. Amberley was a natural sequence, for you must admit that our unfortunate client has few outward graces, whatever his inner virtues may be. The couple went off together last week. Destination? Untraced. What is more, the faithless spouse carried off the old man's deed box as her personal luggage, with a good part of his life savings within. Can we find the lady? Can we save the money? A commonplace problem so far as it has developed, and yet a vital one for Josiah Amberley. What will you do about it? Well, the immediate question, my dear Watson, happens to be, what will you do, if you'll be good enough to understudy me? You know that I am preoccupied with the case of the two Coptic patriarchs, which should come to a head today. I really have not time to go out to Lewisham, and yet evidence taken on the spot has a special value. The old fellow was quite insistent that I should go, but I explained my difficulty. He is prepared to meet a representative. By all means, I answered. I confess I don't see that I can be of much service, but I am willing to do my best. And so it was that on a summer afternoon I set forth to Lewisham, little dreaming that within a week the affair in which I was engaging would be the eager debate of all England. It was late that evening before I returned to Baker Street and gave an account of my mission. Holmes lay with his gaunt figure stretched in his deep chair, his pipe curling forth slow wreaths of acrid tobacco, while his eyelids drooped over his eyes so lazily that he might have been asleep were it not that at any halt or questionable passage of my narrative they half-lifted and two grey eyes, as bright and keen as rapiers, transfixed me with their searching glance. The Haven is the name of Mr. Josiah Amberley's house, I explained. I think it would interest you, Holmes. It is like some penurious patrician who has sunk into the company of his inferiors. You know that particular quarter. The monotonous brick streets, the weary suburban highways. Right in the middle of them, a little island of ancient culture and comfort, lies this old home. Surrounded by a high sun-baked wall, mottled with lichens and topped with moss. The sort of wall that... Cut out the poetry, Watson, said Holmes severely. I note that it was a high brick wall. Exactly. I should not have known which was the haven had I not asked the lounger who was smoking in the street. I have a reason for mentioning him. He was a tall, dark, 
heavily moustached, rather military-looking man. He nodded in answer to my inquiry, and gave me a curiously questioning glance, which came back to my memory a little later. I had hardly entered the gateway before I saw Mr. Amberley coming down the drive. I only had a glimpse of him this morning, and he certainly gave me the impression of a strange creature. But when I saw him in full light, his appearance was even more abnormal. I have, of course, studied it, and yet I should be interested to have your impression, said Holmes. Uh, he seemed to me like a man who was literally bowed down by care. His back was curved, as though he carried a heavy burden. Yet he was not the weakling that I had first imagined, for his shoulders and chest had the framework of a giant, though his figure tapers away into a pair of spindled legs. Left shoe wrinkled, right one smooth. I did not observe that. No, you wouldn't. I spotted his artificial limb. But proceed. I was struck by the snaky locks of grizzled hair which curled from under his old straw hat, and his face with its fierce, eager expression and the deeply lined features. Very good, Watson. What did he say? He began pouring out the story of his grievances. We walked down the drive together, and of course I took a good look round. I've never seen a worse-kept place. The garden was all running to seed, giving me an impression of wild neglect in which the plants had been allowed to find the way of nature rather than of art. How any decent woman could have tolerated such a state of things, I don't know. The house, too, was slatternly to the last degree. But the poor man seemed himself to be aware of it, and to be trying to remedy it, for a great pot of green paint stood in the center of the hall, and he was carrying a thick brush in his left hand. He had been working on the woodwork. He took me into his dingy sanctum, and we had a long chat. Of course, he was disappointed that you had not come yourself. I had hardly expected, he said, that so humble an individual as myself, especially after my heavy financial loss, could obtain the complete attention of so famous a man as Mr. Sherlock Holmes. I assured him that the financial question did not arise. No, of course, it's... Art for art's sake with him, said he. But even on the artistic side of crime, he might have found something here to study. And human nature, Dr. Watson. The black ingratitude of it all. When did I ever refuse one of her requests? Was ever a woman so pampered? And that young man, he might have been my own son. He had the run of my house, and yet see how they have treated me. Oh. Dr. Watson, it is dreadful, dreadful world we live. That was the burden of his song for an hour or more. He had, it seems, no suspicion of an intrigue. They lived alone, 
save for a woman who comes in by the day and leaves every evening at six. From that particular evening, old Amberley, wishing to give his wife a treat, had taken two upper circle seats at the Haymarket Theatre. The last moment, she had complained of a headache and had refused to go. He had gone alone. There seemed to be no doubt about the fact, for he produced the unused ticket which he had taken for his wife. That is remarkable, most remarkable, said Holmes, whose interest in the case seemed to be rising. Pray, continue, Watson. I find your narrative most arresting. Did you personally examine this ticket? You did not, perchance, take the number. It so happens that I did, I answered with some pride. It chanced to be my old school number, 31, and so it stuck in my head. Excellent, Watson. His seat, then, was either 30 or 32. Quite so, I answered with some mystification. And on B row. That is most satisfactory. What else did he tell you? He showed me his strong room, as he called it. It really is a strong room, like a bank, with iron door and shutter, burglar-proof, as he claimed. However, the woman seems to have had a duplicate key, and between them, they had carried off some 7,000 pounds worth of cash and securities. Securities? How could they dispose of those? He said that he had given the police a list, and that he hoped they would be unsaleable. He had got back from the theatre about midnight, and found the place plundered, the door and window open, and the fugitives gone. There was no letter or message, nor has he heard a word since. He at once gave the alarm to the police. Holmes brooded for some minutes. You say he was painting? What was he painting? Well, he was painting the passage, but he had already painted the door and woodwork of this room I spoke of. Does it not strike you as a strange occupation in the circumstances? One must do something to ease an aching heart. That was his own explanation. It was eccentric, no doubt, but he is clearly an eccentric man. He had tore up one of his wife's photographs in my presence, tore it up furiously in a tempest of passion. I never wish to see her damned face again, he shrieked. Anything more, Watson? But yes, one thing which struck me more than anything else. I had driven to the Blackheath station and had caught my train there, when just as it was starting, I saw a man dart into the carriage next to my own. You know that I have a quick eye for faces, Holmes. It was undoubtedly the tall, dark man whom I had addressed in the street. I saw him once more at London Bridge, and then I lost him in the crowd. But I am convinced that he was following me. No doubt, no doubt, said Holmes. A tall, dark, heavily moustached man, you say, with grey-tinted sunglasses. Holmes, you're a wizard. I did not say so, but 
He had gray-tinted sunglasses. And a Masonic tie pin. Holmes! Quite simple, my dear Watson, but let us get down to what is practical. I must admit to you that the case, which seems to me to be so absurdly simple as to be hardly worth my notice, is rapidly assuming a very different aspect. It is true that though, in your mission, you have missed everything of importance, yet even those things which have obtruded themselves upon your notice give rise to serious thought. What have I missed? Don't be hurt, my dear fellow. You know that I am quite impersonal. No one else would have done better. Some possibly not so well, but clearly you have missed some vital points. What is the opinion of the neighbors about this man Amberley and his wife? That surely is of importance. What of Dr. Ernest? Was he the gay Lothario one would expect? With your natural advantages, Watson, every lady is your helper and accomplice. What about the girl at the post office? Or the wife of the greengrocer? I can picture you whispering soft nothings with the young lady at the blue anchor and receiving hard somethings in exchange. All this you have left undone. Uh, it can still be done. It has been done. Thanks to the telephone and the help of the yard, I can usually get my essentials without leaving this room. As a matter of fact, my information confirms the man's story. He has the local repute of being a miser, as well as a harsh and exacting husband. That he had a large sum of money in that strong room of his is certain. So also is that young Dr. Ernest, an unmarried man, played chess with Amberley and probably played the fool with his wife. All this seems plain sailing, and one would think that there was no more to be said. And yet, and yet, where lies the difficulty? In my imagination, perhaps. Well, leave it there, Watson. Let us escape from this weary workaday world by the side door of music. Karina sings tonight at the Albert Hall, and we still have time to dress, dine, and enjoy. End of Part 1 of The Adventure of the Retired Colorman by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Okay, so this isn't my first rodeo with Sherlock Holmes cases, right? We've read, what, six-some-odd cases over the course of this season. I've read a few last season as well. So I've, I'd like to think I've cozied up a little bit to Doyle's pen. Like, I'm familiar with how he writes, how he leads and guides the reader through a case. I would like to think that. And I wasn't that far off with the lion's mane. It was preying off of knowledge we didn't previously had. I mean, who would have thunk that a lion's mane was... No, that's a spoiler. Go listen to it yourself. But you wouldn't pick it up unless you were in a certain field, let's just say. So um, I'd like to think that in this case, Doyle is doing the exact same thing, preying off of knowledge that me as the reader does not have and make Holmes out to be some brilliant person who's like identified some rare, you know, 
tobacco scent that, you know, only somebody who studied tobacco leaves would know, you know, or something like that. So that could very well be the case. But off of the offset, there's a few things that are like red flags for me in this this whole story that is woven for us. Because we've got a 60-some-odd-year-old man who, workaholic, worked his entire life for an artistic supply company. So he's familiar with the paints um, and, you know, comes to the end of his career and is like, ah, I've worked my entire life. I have nobody to spend it with. Not a wife, not kids, you know, maybe not a lot of friends because he was just working all the time. So he tries to take some corrective action, finds a lovely young woman, um, gets married, and, you know, is like, this is, this is the, the starting point. Um, finds a chess playing partner. So we know Josiah is a turn-based strategist. Like, he loves those types of games. And so he must enjoy strategy. And, you know, I'm just grasping at straws here. And so, you know, we've got this guy who's, who's trying to um, catch up on a life that he lost over his time. A couple years in, realizes his wife's not into him and is actually into his playing partner, Dr. Ray Ernest. And so we've got that whole, like, thing. Although he never suspected, he says to Watson, that there was anything happening between the two of them. He just was like, I've done everything for this woman. There is no reason why she should be having eyes for another person. Other than the fact that maybe they're 20 years apart. Maybe it had something to do with it. I don't know. Worked for Robert De Niro, so maybe it works for him too. Who knows? But anyway, I digress. So that's what happens. She runs off with this young doctor, Ray Ernest, and they steal a small bit of Joe's life savings as well as um, some of his personal effects. So Josiah's out quite a bit here. However, here's some curious things. One, he notes that his wife has a key to his safe because they're married to each other. And that's what people in a trusting marriage relationship do. So I presume. And so she has no reason to quote-unquote break into his safe. And yet, when Josiah gives his account to the police, he describes him coming back to a home late at midnight with doors and windows flung open. Why? There is no need for that theatrical performance to be played because she has a key. She could have easily, you know, left everything completely as it was and then fled with the earnest and accomplished the same goal of communicating to her husband, I don't love you, I love this man, and by the way, we took some of your money. You know? She doesn't have to leave windows and doors open. Second thing, he's a, known as a stingy person, right? He decides he's going to take his wife out to the theater. Go figure, he buys second circle seats, which my understanding is second circle seats are like the upper balcony in the way back, you know? 
However, Watson notes that they are in the B section, the B row, which is like the row directly behind the railing to like overlook down below to the lower first circle and stalls. So probably clearly visible uh, he would be to other people um, so that he's not like completely lost in the crowd. Because the reason I want to focus on this is because Holmes oddly perked up when he talks about this ticket that his he produced uh, that never had his wife like use it and Holmes all of a sudden is like whoa this is interesting and I'm like why is that interesting you know I'm always kind of curious about those things and so you know we've got that whole like side thing so if I didn't know any better I would I would almost say that Holmes is getting suspicious of the story that Josiah Amberley is telling. But I don't know. There's just a lot of unknown variables. We're still in the first part. So that all being said, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. Next week, we will conclude this case. See if my suspicions may be going down the wrong direction or um, I have indeed figured out the unlocked the code to Doyle's precarious pen but until then as they say in showbiz for now that's all he wrote